0: Hey everybody, welcome to Master Class Theology. Our main teacher, Joe Bradshaw, is taking a well-deserved two-week sabbatical, and in his place, you're stuck with me. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Mick. I'm a teacher here at the bridge, and I'm very excited to be teaching here tonight. Heck, I'm actually honored to be doing this. I've, I've got some really big shoes to be filling in for tonight, so without further ado, let's jump into a quick word of prayer. God... Dad, we, we love you. We are so grateful to you for everything. As we jump into this lesson, we ask that you may speak to us all. Maybe to teach us something, maybe to remind us of something. Whatever it is, we trust that your word will do a work in our lives. And we ask this humbly in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Now, we generally do book studies in, these, in this Masterclass um, Theology. But for these next two weeks, I thought it would be a cool change um, to to actually do uh, topical lessons instead So with that, let's dive right in What's the gospel? What is the gospel? Some of you may say that it's the good news, and yeah, literally that's what it is But what is the good news then? Some will say that it's that Jesus died for our sins And that's definitely a part of it That salvation is a free gift from God by grace through faith yeah that's it too that Jesus literally physically rose from the dead that's absolutely a part of it but what did Jesus say the gospel was in mark 1 verses 14 and 15 it says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God okay so here it is and Jesus said the time has come the kingdom of God is has come near repent and believe the good news and the good news here in the nib is literally the word gospel according to jesus the gospel is the kingdom of god is near now before addressing the kingdom of god let's start with the easier near so what did he mean when he said that it's near did he mean it's it'll be here in the next five minutes um, that an army of angels is just around the corner at a moment's notice and, and ready to, to take over? Or did he mean within generation? If I was in, in that crowd listening to him, what was I supposed to get by, by him saying that? The Greek term used here can mean has come near. And that's what most English translations of the Bible translated as. But it can also mean has arrived. Is the kingdom of God here or is it yet to come or or is it both without getting into a lengthy discussion about this i I think it's both um i believe that in his infinite wisdom the holy spirit guided the author to intentionally use that greek term for its very ambiguity it's obvious that we're still waiting for things to be fulfilled regarding god's earthly kingdom that's why later when teaching his disciples how to pray He told them to pray, Thy kingdom come. So yeah, there is that dimension that it's near and not quite here yet. Yet later in Luke 17, uh, verses 20 and 21, he says that the kingdom of God is here now. In the Beelzebub incident, in Matthew uh, 12, one of the things that Jesus says is that the very exorcisms he's performing means that the kingdom of God is here now too. So there is this tension of, Yet to come and hear now about the kingdom of God. Going back to his original first century Palestinian audience, what did they understand by the kingdom of God? Jesus is deliberate in his wording. He he is eliciting a a reaction. He's looking for a response from his audience. Why didn't he just say, hey yo, the Messiah is in the house, or it's the end of the world as we know it? And I feel fine. Among other things, the one thing that they understood and that we need to understand today is that the kingdom of God has to do with the prophecies concerning end times. And with the gospel being the kingdom of God, we need to know that. The kingdom of God is, is all about the end time messianic prom- promises. And it's comprised of seven key elements. Number one, the kingdom of God Begins with Jesus' proclamation, his teaching, and miracles. Number two, it is the establishment of the new covenant in Jesus' sacrificial death. Number three, it is the resurrection of Jesus. Number four, it is his ascension and and exaltation at the right hand of of God the Father and his sending us, us of the Holy Spirit. Number five, it is the proclamation of the gospel beyond Israel's borders. Number six, it is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And number seven, it is the return of Jesus. As we saw at the launch of his public ministry in Mark 1, um, Jesus has essentially said the kingdom of God is here and there's no turning back. Jesus' proclamation is the grand opening and it's a full inauguration. Jesus explains this when, when he compares the kingdom to a mustard seed. In Mark 4, 30, verses 30 through, uh, let me rephrase that. In Mark 4, verses 30 through 34, he says, it is like a mustard seed. Notice, he didn't say that the seed will grow and become the kingdom of God. He said that even at the mustard seed stage, it already is the kingdom of God. And yes, it will grow into a tree. Again, there's that here and now yet to come dimension to it the kingdom of God began with the person and proclamation of Jesus and his teachings and his miracles we talked about it earlier that in Luke 17 21 Jesus said it's here in Luke 4 18 through 21 when Jesus read from the scroll the part uh, from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 in the synagogue he read the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After he read that, he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today. This was a messianic kingdom of God prophecy. And he is clearly affirming that in his person and proclamation, The kingdom of God was a present thing. Most of Jesus' parables begin with him saying the kingdom of God, or if you're reading from Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like this or that. So we know that this was the heart of his message. But what about his miracles? How do they fit into the kingdom of God? First, let's notice what they are not. Even though Jesus is talking about a literal kingdom too, none of his miracles are a physical or political attack on the Roman Empire. There is no record of that in the Bible. This demonstrates that that conquest, at least not a geopolitical conquest, was the priority of the kingdom agenda. So, what purpose did his miracles serve them? And while most of us would say that it was to prove that he was the Messiah or because of his compassion for the people, the miracles actually served a much greater purpose than that. Let's look at the four categories that they fall into. Number one, they were healings. Number two, they were exorcisms. Number three, there were miracles that demonstrated his power over the physical universe. And number four, let's not forget, he brought back people, not from the brink of death, but from death itself. In each of these miracles, Jesus is giving us a sneak preview of what kingdom life is going to look like once it's consummated. God is going to reverse the adverse effects of sin. And in that way, his miracles also proclaim the kingdom of God. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks about his upcoming uh, crucifixion. In one of those talks, when Peter says, No, Lord, you're the Christ, you can't die. Jesus has to tell Peter to stop being a Satan. You know, I actually feel bad for Peter here. He kind of had the point. Think about it for a moment. In all of this kingdom talk, if Jesus is proclaiming the arrival of God's eternal kingdom, in what universe does it make sense for its king to, well, for for its king to die? In his infinite wisdom, God, for reasons all his own, he just doesn't reveal everything all at once. When it comes to the teachings about the Messiah, the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, the information is all over the place and not necessarily in a a linear order. It's more like a puzzle or a riddle than a plain, here it is. From our perspective, this can and does cause confusion. Um, For the first century Jews desperately hoping for deliverance from what seemed like a never-ending series of conquests, From the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, to the Persians, to the Greeks, and at that present time, the Romans, they desperately longed for and focused primarily on the teachings of a David-like Messiah figure that would come to save the day. And yeah, that is part of the Messiah's job description, but it ignores the part one of the plan. Remember earlier when we read Luke 4 about Jesus reading the the scroll of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2? If you look at Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2, you'll notice that Jesus stops short of reading the whole thing. He stops before the and. He reads the proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, but he stops short of reading the day of the vengeance of God. Why? Why would he do that? Because he knew that if he didn't deal with the sin problem, the kingdom of God would be an empty kingdom with no inhabitants everyone would be under God's wrath. They failed to see the need for atonement, and as a result, they failed to see that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 was also the same David-like Messiah. They were so focused on the geopolitical, earthly dimensions of the Messiah that they forgot about the spiritual reality and the need to be freed from bondage, the bondage of sin that ruined everything for everyone. Otherwise... How would God's kingdom be any different than the world they were living in? there needed to be a permanent solution to sin, suffering and death if people were to live forever in God's new kingdom during the the Lord's Supper also called the Eucharist, which by by no means was a, a pat, which by no means was an accident it, that it was a Passover meal, Jesus talks about a new covenant. Jesus taught that in fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, which were about him anyway, that he would become the new, greater, ultimate Passover lamb who would be sacrificed for the atonement, that is, for the payment of our sin. In John 1.29, John the Baptist calls him the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as as he sees Jesus coming by, In in the last Passover meal, before his crucifixion, Jesus tells his disciples that he is God's Passover lamb. The broken bread was a metaphor for his body, which would be beaten and broken on account of our sin. The wine was a metaphor for his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, marking the the new covenant's establishment. This this was the covenant which was most explicitly prophesied in Jeremiah 31. Verses 31 through 34, but it was also prophesied in passages like Isaiah 42, 6, 49, 8, 54, 10, 55, verses 1 through 5, 59, 21, 61, verses 1 through 9, and other passages throughout the Old Testament. For for all of, of this, nothing speaks louder, the reality of the kingdom of God than the resurrection of Jesus. The greatest thing of the curse from Eden was that from dust we came, and to it we shall return. Death. New heaven and new new earth mean nothing if we're going to die. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes in verse one that the resurrection from the dead is the gospel. In verses three and four, he says that in accordance to scripture, Jesus had to rise from the dead. In fact, by verses 12 through 17, he says, If Jesus did not resurrect, then resurrections are not a thing. And worst of all, our Christian faith is worthless. There is no Christianity. Everything about the kingdom of God hangs on this being true. Let me put it this way. The gospel is the kingdom of God is here, of which of first importance is that the resurrection is real. And as Paul goes on to write in verses 42, the new resurrection body, it's immortal. It will never die. It's imperishable. Again, all of this is possible because of the reality of Jesus's resurrection. For those keeping score, the clearest prophecy about the resurrection of believers in the, in the Old Testament is found in Daniel 12 too. Check it out during his teaching in the upper room jesus tells his disciples that he is leaving but that the holy spirit was coming according to john 14 17 prior to to his ascension that means all of human history before acts chapter 2 the day of pentecost celebration the best people could ever hope for was a with the spirit relationship with god even david a man used by the Holy Spirit to pen the very words of God in many Psalms, something none of us can claim. In Psalm fifty-one, eleven, he wrote, Do not take your spirit from me. You see, the best one could hope for before Jesus returned to heaven after his resurrection was that the Holy Spirit would be with you, but then he, he, he would leave you. The game changer that Jesus is promising here is that no longer Will the Holy Spirit just be with people and then not? But that now the Holy Spirit would be in people always, all day and all of the night, 24-7, eight days a week, always. The kingdom of God is that the Spirit of God would now dwell in our hearts forever. In John 16, 7, Jesus says that it is to our advantage, to our advantage that he leaves so that the Holy Spirit would come and indwell us going back to john 14 12 jesus said that we would do greater things because of the holy spirit than than even he himself did and that and, and when he's saying that it's in the fact that we could have greater outreach opportunities as a bunch of people with the indwelling holy spirit versus just one of him since when he became a man he was limited in where he could be at any given time again the Holy Spirit indwelling us is made possible by Jesus ascending into heaven and being exalted at the right hand of God the Father. For more on this, um, I, I read John 14 through 16 and Peter's sermon in Acts 2, verses 14 through 19. I'm uh, sorry, sorry, 14 through 39. And I'll even throw in uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Uh, going back to the greater than Jesus accomplishments. It's not about performing supernatural feats. Seriously. How can anyone top walking on water or, as Junior would say, feeding both four and 5,000 people with, with Lunchables? No. The greater things would be to take the gospel message from tiny first-century Palestine into North American sports arenas and into the remotest recesses of the Amazon and beyond. Greater things include... Being able to translate the Bible from its original languages to at least 700 languages Greater things include seeing the people who used to be cannibals and and worship a bunch of gods Now worshiping the one true God Greater things include seeing lives transformed from from being self-centered to God-centered And and the recovery of of former addicts, gang members, and, and and restoration of abuse victims. The Great Commission, the spread of the gospel throughout the world, is also the gospel. Remember the earliest promise of the Messiah, the earliest seed form proclamation of the gospel in the kingdom of God? It was a promise for all humanity in the Garden of Eden, before there was a Jew, back in Genesis 3.15. And if you look back at Genesis 12, 2 and 3, While the gospel was first for the Jews, it was God's purpose all along that all the other nations would be a part of it as well. Um, Joel covered this really well when we did the the, uh, Jonah series not too long ago. On the onset, um, this one seems a bit out of place, but its significance cannot be ignored. Besides it being judgment for Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and, and Israel's role in putting, to death, putting him to death, more, more importantly, the destruction of the temple signifies that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is over. Uh, that, in fact, a new covenant really is in effect and that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, now dwells in temples, not made by human hands. It really means that the covenant is here. Again, Jeremiah 31, 31 31-34. Now, before hitting the last point, I want us to remember that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The start of Jesus' public ministry is that mustard seed, the full inauguration of the kingdom of God. Think about it. Of the seven points that comprise the kingdom of God, six are already in play. If the kingdom was fully inaugurated with Jesus' earthly ministry, it is all that and more with parts (laughs) two through six in motion. Part seven, the second coming of Jesus, is the consummation of the fully inaugurated kingdom of God. But make no mistake, as strange as it may seem to say, we are living in the last days and in a relatively short time, and mind you, short time has to, Do with God's perspective of it we will see the completion the consummation of all that God promised regarding his kingdom as of Jesus first coming we we were already past mile 26.1 of the marathon as God defines soon we will experience a physical literal resurrection we will become immortal live forever We will no longer sin or suffer. We will see Jesus face to face. And while I have to be careful about this last one, I will have a full set of hair. But if I don't, I've learned to rock a a clean shaven head. So much for humility there, huh? So in closing, the gospel, which is the kingdom of God, is Jesus. He came to us and for us. Through the Holy Spirit indwelling us, that means that God lives in us. And in a most glorious, physical, literal way, he will come back for us and be with us forever and ever. The kingdom of God really is good news for us all. God bless everyone. And um, let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you, Dad, for this time. When we are down, help us to remember that we belong to you, that we, that you are for us. Be praised always, and we pray this in in the name of Jesus again, Amen. All right, well, that's this week's lesson. Um, I hope that it will be a, a blessing to to anybody and everybody listening to it. Um, God bless, and hope to to get in touch with you next week. Bye.